1: Good morning. Today is Wednesday, November 13th, 2019. I'm your host, Gene Wilhelm, and you're listening to Red Sea Roundup. Uh, We've got a very busy show today. I hope we can get it all in. Uh, Today is the feast of St. Francis Cabrini, Francis Xavier Cabrini. We'll talk more about her later if we have time in this first part of the show. My guest later will be Dr. Michael Foley from Baylor, and we have in the studio with us today, David Jordan. And on the phone, we have Adam Brill. And I'm going to let Thaddeus talk to Adam about an event that's coming up at St. Thomas Aquinas that should be of interest to all people in the Brazos Valley, but even from our listeners out in the Waco area and in the Palestine area.
0: Good morning, Adam. How you doing, man? Good. I'm doing well. How are you? I am great. I'm very excited to hear you tell our listeners about this opportunity, which we introduced to them at our benefit dinner last Thursday. And you've got, uh, you have been having signups for it. It's what you're calling a liturgical formation conference. Tell them about how it came to be, some initiative on your part, and uh, what they have in store for themselves if they come. Yeah.
2: Thanks. Uh, so we're hosting this liturgical conference uh, this Saturday, November sixteenth. Uh, it started out kind of uh, as a conversation that I've been having with a bunch of different people in the area about trying to have uh, a greater understanding about the liturgy, uh, about what it means to worship God, uh, and what what we do in the Mass, and what we do in any other various types of liturgy and devotional practice. And uh, so what happened is I found out, I got connected with uh, Dom Alcuin-Reed. He's a French uh, Benedictine. Uh, he's actually one of In my opinion, uh, the most brilliant liturgical theologians in the world, Um, maybe second to uh, Pope Benedict Emeritus, uh, who actually wrote the preface to his uh, most important work. Um, Dom Alcuin Reed is visiting Texas uh, this this week and next week. He's uh, doing a little bit of fundraising for his uh, for his abbey, trying to get things set up. So, can I interrupt uh, you real quick, Adam?
0: So, folks, so this is this is a heavy hitter with the mm-hmm. meaning and the uh, purpose of the liturgy, and as Adam just said, second only to Pope Emeritus Benedict the Sixteenth and his intellectual power and his uh, the, the volume of works that he's created, yes? Yeah. For and he's sure. coming to St. Thomas Aquinas. So many
2: things. Mm-hmm. Okay. He's coming here uh, to Thomas Aquinas to give specifically a keynote uh, on Saturday, Uh, But he'll actually be here pretty much the whole day, um, helping with liturgy uh, and talking to people and uh, sharing his knowledge. Um, But since he's coming in to share his knowledge with us, uh, instead of just having a one-hour keynote where he he talked about the liturgy and he gave a little appeal about his his ministry, uh, we decided to make it a full-day formation event. So uh, we don't just have him coming and speaking. uh, We have Father Greg Gerhardt. Associate Pastor at St. Mary's, uh, and we also have um, uh, Michael Rea, who is the architect behind the new St. Mary's, um, and of course we have myself. You know, I, I got to throw a little bit of plug for myself out there. Um, but <laughs> fill in the gaps. Have, uh, yeah, yeah. I feel I, I start everybody off in the morning while everyone's still asleep. Uh, <laughs> but uh, then uh, to, to top it all off, uh, part of the reason why I am so active in liturgy is that. It's not just something that you think about. It's not just the theology that you write textbooks on, but it's something you do. It's something you pray. Um, So while we will have these sessions uh, helping form us on the liturgy, we're actually going to pray the liturgy. We're going to have morning prayer and evening prayer from the Liturgy of the Hours. We're going to have Mass and confession uh, and things like that, and we're basically making this whole day uh, into a retreat that really helps people uh, understand the liturgy, but to really... Uh, enter more deeply into it, and as the title of the event is, to really engage the Mass.
1: Adam, this is Gene. Uh, what are the hours, and what, uh, where would somebody go at St. Thomas Aquinas to be a part of this, and is there any registration or anything they need to do?
2: Yeah, thanks. So the hours are—the uh, first event with morning prayer will start around 9.30, and it'll go till about 5.00. Uh, so 9.30 to 5. Uh, but we, we're we welcoming people to come at any time throughout the day uh, for one, two sessions. Uh, if you go to the St. Thomas Aquinas website, stabcs.org, uh, you can see the whole schedule there. You can see when each talk is, when Mass is, confessions, all that kind of stuff. Um, we did have registration that already closed uh, to ensure that you had a meal provided. Uh, Because we were making this not only a free event uh, for everyone, but we were going to include meal for people who registered uh, ahead of time. Uh, But people are welcome to come, uh, regardless of whether they registered or not. And you're welcome to bring your own lunch uh, if you want to stay for lunch and the whole day. uh, But you're also welcome to come to one, two, three sessions. Uh, And they're basically split up, two two talks in the morning, two in the afternoon, uh, with different liturgical elements interspersed.
0: Okay, so that's this Saturday at St. Thomas Aquinas. Get there uh, around 9 o'clock, and you can stay for the whole day or come for different parts of the day.
1: One last thing, Adam. Which building at St. Thomas is this going to happen in?
2: Most of it will be in the pastoral activity center, the PAC. Okay. Uh, for the liturgical elements, we might be moving around a little bit to the, to the church and the chapel, but, you know, we got some construction going on. Right. So. We're still playing that a little bit by ear, but all the major events will be in the Pastoral Center.
1: And the Pastoral Center is the building on the right, in the front of the church, as you come in off of
0: Highway 6. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Dom mm-hmm. Dom Reed is speaking at what time, if people want to especially come for that?
2: Uh, I believe he's speaking around 2.15.
1: Okay. okay. Adam, thank you so much. We appreciate that you shared this uh, opportunity with our listeners, and I would invite our listeners everywhere to... Uh, think about coming to this.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me and I hope to
1: see everyone there.
0: All right, thanks Adam. Have a blessed day. Bye-bye.
1: Okay. Bye. So, now let's get with David Jordan, who is a representative of the Central Texas Fellowship of Catholic Men. And in the there's a lot going on with Central Texas Fellowship of Catholic Men, but in particular we've asked you here to talk to something to us about something that's happening again at St. Thomas on December the 7th. Can you tell us a little bit about
3: that, David? That's correct, Gene. Uh, on December 7th, uh, we are having a uh, uh, Bryan College Station Deanery Men's Morning of Reflection. Uh, this is also taking place um, at uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, and um, it's at 8 o'clock. We'll have Mass. Uh, we'll have a, um, uh, a time of, um, of reflection. It's a half a day. Uh, we also have a uh, uh, a speaker, a keynote speaker coming in, uh, Trey Cashin. And if it,
1: Trey Cashin, if those folks that don't know Trey Cashin, you will be uh, thoroughly informed.
3: Right, and and uh, he will uh, talk about disciples uh, discipleship starting with uh, by giving your life to Christ, and um, uh, we'll conclude at uh, at noon. Um, and um, obviously, we'll, we will we uh, will try to have uh, coffee and, and so forth throughout the day. We'll have breaks and and um, uh, a uh, a time to get together and, and discuss what's going on, uh, what uh, what Trey talked about and so forth, and trying to make a, a it's it's a men's gathering so that uh, we are educating the men of the Brazos uh, of the Brazos Valley of of uh, Brian. And uh, Bryan College Station, and uh, bringing them to their uh, their discipleship and, and leadership roles in the uh, in the church.
1: Again, this is something that uh, if someone is in one of our out what well, the other listening areas, like in the Waco or Palestine area, this is something that would be interesting for just about any man. Uh, but and I would think that it would be something where a man should be happy to bring his 13-, 16 year old son or older. If you can get them out of bed,
3: <laughs> exactly, and uh, especially since it's a Saturday, yes. Um, but uh, yes, that's that is correct. Uh, we started this because uh, uh, we have a uh, the Central Texas Fellowship have has a um, 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 a men's mass every July, and uh, we decided to try to do a mini kind of a mini mass so that uh, men of this area that can't go to the Austin area for the for the men's mass uh, can have an opportunity to get together and, and uh, realize that they're not by themselves. They're they, they are other men that have. Uh,
1: and there's another event that's coming up in February that we'll talk about more later, right. which is the annual conference. And this year that conference has outgrown the facilities that it's used in the past. It's at the, the uh, Expo Travis, Travis County Expo Center. And Edwards, Dr. Edward Sri is going to be there for that one.
3: That's correct. And, and two other speakers. Uh, um, uh, father father Ken uh, greasy and um, uh, Curtis Martin yeah he's uh,
1: a, he's a founder of focus as I recall
3: right and and obviously uh, uh, the bishop uh, Bishop Joseph will will be there as well
1: and for more information on that they can go to centexcatholic.org That's and, correct. and get that okay hi thank you so much David, I, I wish you well on this. I hope you have a very active t- part in this thing that's coming up on the 7th. Well, I,
3: and, and I normally do, and I, I look forward to seeing you there.
1: Okay, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, David. Thank you, David. You bet. Appreciate it. Uh, well, it looks like we might have a little time to do some other things. Yeah. Uh, we had a very successful uh, banquet this yes, last we did. Thursday. Yes, and, we did. Uh, there's, there's a way for our listeners uh, to hear the talk by Father Albert Haas. Uh, which it was an outstanding talk. I, I like Father Albert anyway, but mm-hmm. this was an outstanding talk
0: and it I just really wish was. it had been
1: videoed because he was so animated yeah. in what he
0: said. Yeah. Tell us
1: a little bit about it.
0: Uh, that well, you know, that's interesting that you bring up video, Gene, because, um, video is, uh, some, is a direction that we would like to expand in, in the next, uh, five to, to 10 years. And of course that's going to require, um, support from listeners like you. Um, but uh, maybe that will be something we'll be able to do in future upcoming uh, benefits is to, is to video some of those talks and, and put other things that we do uh, in the community and on the air on video. And so that's definitely a direction we're, we're going in. In fact, we talked a lot about the future of the apostolate. Uh, Dennis Maka did that night, and that, that talk is available as well.
1: And how, do, how does somebody get to see listen to these talks?
0: Well, they just go right to redsearadio.org, and there's a nice banner there. Our benefit banner is still up there. And there's a little sticker there now with uh, Father Albert's face on it. It says, click here to listen to Father Albert's talk, and it'll take you to a page that has his fantastic uh, remarks on paths of contemporary holiness. Uh, I can't recommend that enough. It, it could be... Um, it could be, you know, life changing for, for somebody. Yes. And then we've got our r- remarks from Dennis on uh, a vision for the apostolate. And then if you weren't able to come to the benefit dinner, I know it was cold that night. And although also people's schedules just sometimes don't allow that to happen. Uh, you can still contribute to the vision of the apostolate. You can still be a part of the, uh, the mission.
1: And th- this is talking about Red Sea Radio as a whole. Yes, the Red Sea Apostolate uh, not, not just limited to KEDC.
0: That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, sir. So come check that out, redsearadio.org, and click on the Benefit Dinner banner to get to that audio. Uh,
1: okay. And I want to talk a little bit about Mother Frances Cabrini, if oh, I Oh, we've can. got to. Got to. Because uh, she was uh, raised in Italy and mm-hmm. uh, had been— re- CC? CC, yeah. And so she had been rejected by a couple of religious orders and and basically founded her own, and uh, she wanted to have missionaries going to China, and Pope Leo XIII said, no, I need you to go to America. And so she went there, and she became the first American saint. Okay.
0: We got about a minute and a half. A minute and a half.
1: Okay. Well, I can talk more about that then she uh, she came to america she came to the to new york and basically the archbishop didn't know she was coming and said hmm, why don't you get back on the boat she stayed
0: <laughs> what a warm welcome
1: yeah and so uh, uh she founded like 87 different uh institutes which are like hospitals and all that kind of thing she was in new york and chicago and she even uh she ended up in colorado where you saw her one of her three places here where the that's a uh,
0: for yes, it was a it was a orphanage and um, stray children's home um, on the top of a hill outside of Denver. I took my children to see it uh, last two summers ago when we went back to see and, my parents.
1: And it was overlooking the Coors Brewery, wasn't it?
0: Uh, not not quite, but the Coors Brewery was back off in the distance. But uh, there she she performed a miracle there. She there was no water available, and she told the workmen to you know dig over here in this spot, and lo and behold water came up and there's still a well that is putting out beautiful, delicious spring water to this day.
1: And again, she is the first American citizen to be canonized. So it's really you can learn more about her. All right. We're going to have a quick break and then we'll be back with Dr. Michael Foley. I've been a- back I've seen and I've been a- Welcome back to Red Sea Roundup. I'm your host, Gene Wilhelm, and I have as my special guest today Dr. Michael Foley, who is Associate Pat- uh, Professor of Patristics at Baylor University. And uh, welcome, Mike. I'm just so glad that you're here. Uh, yeah, I've wanted so long to be able to interview you.
4: Well, thanks so much. It's great to be on. Uh
1: I'm going to do one of my corny jokes here, because there are a lot of people that probably don't understand what patristics is. Uh, They might think that it's the study of St. Patrick or something like that. So what is patristics, anyway?
4: It is the study of the Church Fathers, and the Church Fathers are the great Christian influences from about A.D. 100 to A.D. 600, at least in the western part of the Church. So people like St. Augustine, St. Gregory the Great, St. John Chrysostom, those would all be church fathers. Well,
1: that's, that's an interesting thing that you're doing there. I and mean, you're doing it at a Baptist university, and I'm assuming that you don't have to veil your Catholicity at that Baptist university when you're doing your teaching.
4: Not at all. Uh, Baylor is Baptist, but uh, starting about 20 years ago, they became more ecumenical they wanted to become more serious both in their faith and as well as in engaging a Christian intellectual tradition, and they realized that as Baptists, they were historically somewhat thin when it came to having intellectual tradition, so they hired Catholics as part of the conversation.
1: And I've interviewed uh, two two of your associates in the last year or so that, that I know of, and uh, they are very Catholic and seem to say that they were allowed to be very Catholic on the campus.
4: Absolutely. No, uh, I I somewhat impishly joke, because I I came from Notre Dame, where I'd been uh, teaching the department there for three years. And when people asked me, what's it like to be a Catholic theologian at Baylor, I would reply, easier than being a Catholic theologian at Notre Dame. And
1: that's because there's more freedom, or you're to be able to say what you want to say,
4: or...? or... Well, because 20 years ago at the University of Notre Dame, uh, the climate was a little different. Um, I I I like the theology department, Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it's a great department, but 20 years ago, there were competing ideas of what it meant to be a Catholic theologian, so there
0: was
4: sort of infighting, whereas... So, in other words, at Notre Dame, you could be perceived as a potential threat, whereas at Baylor, I'm perceived as an exotic curiosity.
1: <laughs> well, that's great. What what you're really saying is that what you saw at Notre Dame is what's being reflected in the church in general over the last 20, 30, 40 years. That's correct. And so. Now, you have an interesting background. I, I, I see that from uh, your educational background, that uh, you were at Santa Clara University and Boston College, and both of those are jesuit universities and and they are i survived i but you know i i i went to a jesuit high school and and at that you know that's been many many years ago, but they were very Catholic at that time the jesuits
4: yes, and um less so during my generation <laughs> <laughs> so
1: it's interesting that, that you are doing what you're doing. Did you always want to do this? I mean, when you were a five-year-old, say, well, I want to be an associate professor of patristic, patrist- whatever, whatever it is, at Baylor <laughs> University.
4: Yeah, I, I was always interested in my Catholic faith, which is why even after graduating from Catholic high school, I wanted to continue my sort of investigation of Catholicism which is one of the reasons why I wanted to go to a Jesuit university. I had been told that the Jesuits were the scholars of the church and that this would be a good place to learn more about theology. So I went to Santa Clara, but Santa Clara was an odd place. Uh, They don't have a theology department. They have a religious studies department because they want to do more sort of, you know, investigation of world religions or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so I did major in political science and religious studies, but at the end of the four years, I was still unsatisfied and hungry. So it just became sort of a natural conclusion to continue the journey and study theology on the graduate level. And it was only about midway through my work in grad school that it dawned on me, oh, well, I'm studying Catholic theology. I don't have a vocation to the priesthood. I guess I'm going to be a teacher. (laughs) Obviously, I'm not going to be CEO of a Fortune 500 company with a Ph.D. in theology, so I, yeah, I guess I'll
1: teach. What's interesting to me when I look at your your page on the Baylor website, it says you have a B.A. and a B.S., both from Santa Clara, and then Mm -hmm. he doesn't say anything about a master's degree. It says you got your Ph.D. from Boston College, that's a little unusual, isn't it, to have both a B.A. and a B.S. and then skip the master's program?
4: Yes. Yeah, so the B.A. was in religious studies and the B.S. was in political science. I, you know, poli-sci is sort of a, an amphibious creature. It, it is sort of a humanities, but it's also a social science. Yes. And insofar as it's the latter, at least at Santa Clara, they, they gave it a bachelor's of science. Uh, the M.A. thing isn't that unusual, It is typical to get your master's and then apply for a Ph.D. program and then get a Ph.D. What I did, and I don't know if this is as common today as it was 25 years ago, but what I did was applied for the master's program at Boston College, got into the master's program, and then while I was still getting my master's, I applied to the Ph.D. program, got into that, and then just simply shifted into the Ph.D. program without finishing all of the requirements for the master's program.
1: I can say that uh, I've known, I know several young people here at uh, Texas A&M University that have basically done something very similar. They, they skip the whole master's program and go directly into the Ph.D.
4: program. Yeah. The, the one thing I do think is unusual these days is applying directly for a Ph.D. program from undergraduate you know, it, yeah. that's that's kind of a leap, but usually it's safer to apply to the masters, then get into that and use that as the, you know, the the stepping stone to the PhD.
1: Well, now, were
4: you a California boy originally that you chose Santa Clara, or, or? Yes, sir. So born and raised in Southern California, about forty miles east of L.A. Okay,
1: and so you went to Catholic. High school there and uh, obviously you had a very catholic home environment as well and uh, probably were raised in a parish where that that helped to uh, to foster your catholic faith
4: yes although california in the 70s and 80s in terms of catholicism was a somewhat tumultuous time <laughs> so we had good people in the parish, uh, wonderful nuns. I was part of an elementary school run by the Irish Presentation Sisters. But uh, yeah, it was sort of a tumultuous period. Lots of changes were happening to the parish and the liturgy. So in some respects, it was sort of a, a destabilizing period. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: that's interesting that, that but you, you somehow managed to remain stable through all that. I guess so. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about uh, your family life. I know you're married and you have several children, and uh, that that's always an interesting story—how one met his wife and and uh, how the family fits into your situation.
4: That's right. So I was getting my PhD in theology in Boston, and at the time uh, I was attending uh, the only traditional Latin mass that was being offered in the Archdiocese of Boston at the time. And uh, especially in the mid nineties, now I think traditional Latin masses attract a lot of young families, uh, large numbers of children. So you you get a more balanced demographic, but in the mid nineties, at least at this particular community, there were lots and lots of uh, gray haired folk in the uh, congregation. And one Sunday, my future wife, Alexandra, came up the aisle, and she stood out like a fly on a wedding cake with her gorgeous uh, brunette hair. And so it was not long before we met over coffee and donuts after mass. Oh, that that goes uh, that, that fits right in with the seventies, right there. The coffee and donuts. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Well, that's interesting. Is she, was she from Boston? She was, not, not born in Boston, but her, her father taught at Boston University, um, and so they had lived there for uh, quite a while. She had finished her uh, college years and was a manager at a prestigious floral, florist shop in Boston when we met. Oh, and were you married then in, that, in a Latin Rite wedding ceremony? We were. We were married in the same church where we met and the first 3 of our 6 children were baptized there. So you were so you were still in your PhD program when you had 3 children. When we married, I had not yet completed the dissertation. I was oh. everything but the dissertation. So I was still a PhD candidate when we got married. And then about a month or two months after we were married, Alexandra was with child. And when that happened, then I really tried hard to finish the dissertation. So I was able to finish the dissertation before the birth of our first child. Okay, that's great. And so th-
1: did, you, did you teach then at uh, Boston College or something like that for a while?
4: I did. So I sort of taught part-time after getting my Completing the Ph.D., I continued to teach there for a couple of years while I looked for something more permanent. Mm-hmm. So you have six children. That's uh,
1: so three of them were there, and then you you moved around from Boston University, uh, Boston College,
4: to where? Was that when you went to Notre Dame? That's right. So I was at BC for a while, and then taught for three years at the University of Notre Dame. And and
1: what happened? At, is that when you went to Baylor after that?
4: Exactly. So Notre Dame was great um, but it was only a three year position it was sort of a postdoc and so when the three years were up the position wasn't going to turn into a ten year track position so I needed to look for a job elsewhere and looking at the market, I saw that there was this opening at Baylor University which would normally have not attracted me at all because I'm a Catholic theologian and Baylor is the world's oldest and largest Baptist university. and Plus it's in Waco, Texas, which 20 years ago had quite a different reputation than it has oh. now. Did it have anything it, to do with David Koresh? It had a lot to do with that. And Chip and Jojo from Fixer Upper weren't around to rehabilitate our reputation then. So <laughs> uh, it, it looked very unattractive. But I had a couple of friends who had left B.C., in, in very nice positions in order to teach at Baylor, and they were both Catholic, and they said, hey, this is a great place. So I thought, okay, I'll give it a shot. And
1: you've been there ever since? Been there ever since. That's great. Tell me about your wife and children. I I thought I saw somewhere that your wife has the
4: bravery to do homeschooling. She does indeed. Uh, It was— a decision somewhat made somewhat easy by the fact that we didn't see a lot of options in Waco when we came 15 years ago. Now there actually are a lot more opportunities for a good sort of classical education uh, today. But uh, you're right. She homeschools our six kids. Two of them are now in college. So she wow. has successfully matriculated Two of them, and she has four more to go. So where are your older children going to school? They are both here at Baylor.
1: They're at Baylor. That's great. I have two grandchildren at Baylor and one that graduated last year. I did not know that. Yes. So uh, they, I, I, we have, are very fond of Baylor and what it does because it's, it's, it really has done a good job with our eldest grandson.
4: I'm very glad to hear that. I mean, not every, not every story is a success story. Baylor is like any other place. You can get a great education or you can find a way of avoiding a great education.
1: Well, that depends uh, upon know. how much time you spend in the student center or else play, other places.
4: That's right. Exactly. There are a lot of decisions that a student makes that yes. can yes. radically affect what quality of education they get. Yes.
1: College, the college, the college age, there are many, many distractions. Indeed. Tell us a little bit about uh, what 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 are your hopes for your family i mean you've got've you've got six children you have two of them in college uh, and four more to follow on. Do you have any particular hopes or dreams or do you see anything in your children that you think
4: is is special that that you'd like to share with us? Well, the one thing I definitely want for my children is for them to keep the faith that to have them fall in love with the Catholic faith. And obviously, the person of Jesus Christ is is foremost. As for everything else, I, I want them to marry well. I want them to make good career decisions. But I really have no idea what any of my children will be uh, in terms of a job or occupation. Um, and that's kind of interesting. I see different talents in each and every one of them. They're all so unique, but I, I just don't have the foggiest idea. And as a professional theologian, I don't even really know how to advise them. I, my own job is somewhat of a freakish job. I don't, I don't think everyone is cut out to be a professional theologian, so, and I just sort of walked backwards into it. So I, I don't really know. Uh, what kind of careers uh, they will have.
1: And that's that has to be very scary in a lot of ways. I I know that even with our own children, uh, we have four, and they're all very different and in very different professions. And it's kind of scary as they're growing up and then say, well, okay, I guess God is leading you. Yes. So if I may ask, how did you deal with those issues? Not, not as well as I probably should have. I think that... Uh, we, I, maybe we maybe gave them a little bit more leeway than they should have had, but uh, we've we have one that's a doctor and another that uh, went to Ursuline Academy. or well, two daughters went to Ursuline Academy in Dallas, and one of them now is running a, uh, both a farming and ranching uh, business with her husband down here. So Neat. So they're they're very different. I mean, there are so many different things that they can do. Sure. But you, yes, a lot of choices. You've done a lot of things uh, different from what other people would do, and, and you said you have a lot of freedom there at Baylor. Do you find that there are a lot of Catholic students in your classes, or do you find there are uh, – I would think in what you're teaching, you probably have mostly believers uh, there in your classes that maybe are sympathetic to what you're talking about.
4: That is correct. Uh, the majority of students are definitely Christian believers, and uh, there are a number of Catholics at Baylor, although when you hear about Catholics at Baylor, it's, it's easy to overestimate our, our size and influence. I think less than 10% or around 10% of the faculty are Catholic, and I can't remember the statistic for students. I think it could be as high as 25%. And it has the distinction of being the second largest religious group at Baylor, second only to the Baptists, who are at about 40%. Mm -hmm. But the only reason for that is that more and more students are not identifying with a particular denomination. So there are still a lot of students who are effectively Baptist, but they don't think of themselves, or they didn't go to a church that identified itself as Baptist. So we are still a distinct minority at Baylor, but it is a good environment. Um, My two Catholic daughters are frequently challenged by their Protestant classmates about Mary and the Pope and, you know, the sort of usual things. And I think for them, at least, it has been a very good experience. It has forced them to take their own faith a little more seriously. Yes.
1: Uh, and I know that at St. Peter's now, you've got Father Augustine at St. Peter's, who was here at St. Mary's for a couple of years, and uh, you won't find a finer priest than Father Augustine. Uh, he's very radiant. Yes, he is, and joyful. Yes. Have you—and he, he, I think he has a, a CD that he put out, too, that uh, uh, of music that he's done. Exactly. You know, he's uh, very active with the youth. And that's good because that's really what the youth need. They need someone that takes an interest with them and, and supports them and stimulates them and, and encourages them to go on. And it sounds as though you are doing that in your classroom as well as, and in those students that, for whom that you, uh, you have
4: one-on-one time. Well, the neat thing about being a college professor is that you get to engage students with the, the deeper questions, Um, You know, I mean, obviously you do that at an earlier age as well, but there's a difference between catechesis and theology, and I'm able to talk theology with these young adults and not just catechesis. So it makes for a more interesting conversation. It's, It's where you get to see the Catholic Church truly thinking, and that is very exciting. So what you're sa- I think if I understand what you're saying, is
1: with the theology, you get to understand the whys rather than the whats.
4: Exactly. And you also get to explore gray areas. Cate- catechism is learning the basics. It's learning the framework. But theology is then exploring the ins and outs within the framework. And it's where you become a more thoughtful human being.
1: Yes, and and you've done that in a number of ways. You have a number of very scholarly books and articles that you've written, from what I understand.
4: Yes, I do most of my scholarly work either on uh, sacred liturgy or on St. Augustine of Hippo. And
1: uh, Thaddeus and I were discussing St. Augustine of Hippo— I, I recently, on Formed, saw the, the movie on Augustine's life, which I think is like three hours long. It was very interesting, and it, a lot of things that I learned about Augustine that I
4: didn't know before. He led an amazing life. <laughs>
1: uh, and it, which, it, sh- it should be hope for every parent who has a child whom they think is
4: a sinner. Oh, that's absolutely true. Or a, and, a total non-believer. And his mother, St. Monica... Holds the interesting title of being the patron saint of disappointing children. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. I didn't.
1: That's a new one to me.
4: Yes. What a category.
1: <laughs> yes. What is something that uh, you know about Augustine and maybe his teaching or his way of teaching that would be interesting that most people that just scratched the surface of his life wouldn't know?
4: He was far more wry and ironic than you might think. And I'm making this claim on the basis of his early dialogues, where he is a teacher to two students in these dialogues. And he's, he's more of a Socratic figure in the sense of being sort of hard to pin down. And I find that, so fascinating that he kind of could do that persona, especially after you've read the confessions, because in the confessions, he's so plaintive and poignant and sincere that it's, it's interesting to see how versatile he was. He could assume that voice in the confessions, but he takes on a very different voice in his early dialogues. He was uh, remarkably versatile. It, yes,
1: and he was, he was even from what I remember from the movie. Uh, he had a political side as well,
4: that uh, that he got involved in the
1: politics, particularly the politics of religion at that time.
4: Well, in some respects, he had to. He was part of a area of the Roman Empire that was dominated by these these Donatist uh, schismatics. And they actually had a terrorist branch of their church that would basically kill any Donatist who tried to leave their church for the Catholic Church. And so Augustine called in imperial law upon them, and uh, that created the conditions for Donatists to convert more freely to Catholicism. And again, for our listeners that don't
1: understand what a Donatist is, could you give us just a brief description of what a Donatist believed and
4: how it was different from a Catholic at that time? They thought of themselves as the one true Catholic Church because they they consisted only of the pure believers who had never waffled under Roman persecution. So they had these really high rigorous moral standards and they wouldn't accept any baptism from any priest or bishop who had caved in during the persecution usually under pressure of torture whereas augustine recognized no the sacrament the the power of the sacrament has to do with the sacrament itself not the minister and so even if the minister is sinful or later even repudiates his faith. That has nothing to do with the efficacy of the sacrament. And so he went to bat against the Donatists. And when he converted to Catholicism at the age of 32, they were the majority in North Africa. But by the time he died at 76, they, they had become the minority and the Catholics the majority. It sounds to me uh, I can make a comparison to what Jesus faced
1: that the Donatists maybe were roughly the equivalent of the Pharisees in, in their approach to religion.
4: Yes, um, except that maybe in one difference, there, uh, the Pharisees were, could be strict, but there was always something kind of self-serving about them, that okay. they were positioning themselves in such a way that uh, they, they were getting the approval of being the religious authorities— in a weird way, the donatists were more thoroughbred fanatics <laughs> okay, well, that's great. I think Thaddeus
1: has a question he'd like to ask you
0: yeah Mike um you mentioned that he is uh is in Africa um now he this we live in an age where questions of race and ethnicity are are very important and they're very charged um Is it proper to think of um Augustine as as an African or a person of color, as the, the term of art is today?
4: Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm glad that you brought that up, because it shows you how very different our world is today than Augustine's. Indeed. Race, as a category, I have been told, is actually a 17th century invention. Yes. That... In antiquity, they recognized different peoples, but they didn't have a theory of race like we have today. That's right. And Augustine is a very good case in point. We know more about Augustine of Hippo than any other figure in antiquity, pagan or Christian. Uh, the, the, the biographical and the autobiographical information we have far outweighs Anyone else, you know, Alexander the Great, Cicero, Julius Caesar, nothing in terms of the information we have on Augustine can compare. And yet we don't know with the color of his skin. <laughs> what does that tell you about how important the ancients thought of this category? Right. Mm-hmm. So what do we know? We know that he was from North Africa, not Sub-Saharic, Sub-Saharan Africa, so it's very unlikely... That he was a a very dark skinned uh, man, um, his father was Roman, and judging by the name of his mother, Monica, his mother was probably a Berber, uh, which is a native people to North Africa, so they would have been slightly darker skinned um, and so he would have uh, reflected that, but that's all just a guess
0: mm-hmm mm-hmm. Fascinating.
4: So
1: maybe we need to stop looking at the surface and looking beneath the surface when we start to think what we think about people.
4: Exactly. And it's not to say the, the ancients were perfect. The Romans were bigots, but they were political bigots, not racist bigots. <laughs> what they cared was whether you were a, Ro- were a Roman citizen or not, but all you needed was the citizenship. The color of the skin didn't matter. Yes.
1: Tell us a little bit more about some of the other books that you've written, and then I want to talk about the one that's that was your, I guess, is your fun book. Okay. I think we've talked about it on this program before. You talked, I think, with Pam Marvin about it. But, but tell me about some of your other books and publications. And are they things that a layman could understand, or are they things that someone who maybe had, has to have a little bit more
4: uh, theological background to understand? Well, I'm very proud of my popular books. Uh, Very happy that I was able to write them. It started with a book called "Why Do Catholics Eat Fish on Friday: The Catholic Origin to Just About Everything," where I find Catholic roots to things that you would normally think of as secular or non-religious. It was sort of a cocktail trivia book, if you want to be honest. But from there, I went on to do a series of drinking books, Um, Drinking with the Saints, Drinking with St. Nick. And I'm actually having a third of these books come out uh, on St. Patrick's Day, Drinking with Your Patron Saints. And basically, in these books, I offer beer, wine, and cocktail suggestions for the various feast days of the church year. That should have gone over big at Baylor. (laughs) (laughs) Well— I did wait until I got tenure
0: We <laughs> didn't know what we were getting into with this Catholic that we hired. Oh, exactly. it's funny. That's really funny. yeah
1: you had another question.
0: yeah, um your drinking books i think um I think those are an interesting sort of take on um Bishop Barron's idea of leading with beauty is is that is that fair to say?
4: I like to think so um. <laughs> I, I I do honestly believe—I wrote this just for fellow Catholics, mm-hmm. and I wrote it for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really do believe in genuine Catholic merriment and festivity, yeah. and so I thought of this primarily as an aid in that regard. But then, after the book came out, I was invited to give a talk to a parish in New Jersey, and the the parish priest— the pastor introduced me, and he said something quite remarkable. He said, Drinking with the saints is the best evangelical tool I have come upon in the Mm -hmm. last several years. Mm. Now, why did he say that? He went on to explain that he has lots of fallen-away Catholic friends, and when he tries to give them a book on the saints, a wall goes up. But when he gives them a book on drinking... A wall goes down. Yeah. yeah. And so I never thought of it as an evangelical tool, as a as a form of outreach, at least for fallen away Catholics, but apparently it has that value.
0: I also want to say we we homeschool our children as well, and we found it to be a marvelous tool for keeping the liturgical year in the home because it's it's just packed with um well, the toast that you you don't have to have a alcoholic drink in your hand sure. to use the toasts. The Uh, just the information on the saints and the way that the saints feast days have been observed over the years. And you can incorporate that into activities that you do in the home. So it's just a marvelous book for keeping the liturgical year too. And you do a beautiful job of bringing the, the, um, the ordinary form and the extraordinary form together and let them kind of, you know, cross pollinate with the way the book is structured too. So
4: I'm very grateful to hear that. One of my favorite stories after drinking with the saints came out is A family uh, was being asked. It was a large family, and they went around the table and they asked each of the children, "What is your favorite book?" (laughs) And the five-year-old said, "Drinking with the Saints." (laughs) 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 It was because of the saint stories that he had never heard them before. And I grew up with saint stories. We we have a little book where we read a saint story every every morning, uh, and then we start homeschooling after. And so I was just. I just assumed everyone knew the saints' stories. What they wanted were the drinks, but uh, but people need to learn the saints' stories as well.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's a curious question for me, uh, Mike. What motivated you to write "Drinking with the Saints"?
4: Well, uh, as you may have guessed, I have an interest in the liturgical year. My wife and I have always tried to implement liturgical customs throughout the year. So we had that interest, but my wife and I also enjoy an evening cocktail, and so it was only a matter of time before those two things came together.
1: Oh, I've been remiss, listeners. I haven't told you that we have Doctor. Michael Foley, associate professor of patristics at Baylor University, as my guest today, and and uh, I haven't even told you that if you find this conversation interesting, give us a call at 85 five Red Sea. That's eight five five six eight three seven three three two. Uh, I'm sure that uh, uh, our, my guest would be happy to answer your questions, as they can't be any more off the wall than mine.
0: Michael, can you give uh, the listeners just maybe one story about a drink and its connection to a saint? Just just to give them a flavor of the book, if they if they've never heard of it before.
4: Well, sure. Uh, today, for example, is the feast of Saint Didacus, after whom San Diego, California, was named. And so in honor of him, we found a cocktail called the San Diego.
0: (laughs) Now, this is one that you found, or this is one that you created, because some of the drinks in there you and your wife created, correct?
4: That is correct, along with some other friends as well. We have over 350 cocktail recipes in Drinking with the Saints, but at least 75% of those, maybe more, are traditional cocktails. We just... Found cocktails that had a certain name or a certain ingredient that had a tie into a saint, and put it in.
0: Well, if you ever do a revised edition where you're going to create some more cocktails, please count me into the uh, the testing group. I want to be a part of the testing group.
1: <laughs> will do. Okay. <laughs> so, so you the, drinking with the saints is one of those. What's another one that you had as a follow-on to that?
4: So, after Drinking with the Saints came out, we issued a smaller book called Drinking with Saint Nick where I give beer, wine, cocktail suggestions for every day of Advent and Christmas season.
1: Wow. And that it's interesting, I think, I've read somewhere that in some of the religious orders, beer was the one thing they didn't give up for Lent. They might have fasted from everything else, but they didn't give up their beer.
4: That's true, and there were actually nutritional reasons for that, that beer, especially in the Middle Ages, contained a lot of nutrients, And there actually is a special kind of beer called Bach or Doppelbach that was invented specifically for Lent to compensate for the loss of uh, nutrients and calories during the fast. Wow. I, I didn't know that.
0: Now, is Scheiner Bock up to the snuff in terms of the nutrients for that traditional recipe, or is it a, is it a modified recipe? Just out of curiosity, do you know?
4: It, it is modified. Schiner Bach has the name of the Doppelbach tradition, mm-hmm. but it, it's a very modern iteration. So originally, you could actually live for 40 days on Doppelbach beer, just drinking nothing but beer and water. And several people have actually done this, it's become kind of a new thing in for for Lent, hmm. but you you couldn't do that with Shiner. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Got a
0: couple minutes left.
1: Oh, we got a couple minutes left here. I, one of the things that I'd like to t- you talk about a little bit, if you can. What would you speak to uh, a parent or a young person about going forward as, in your life as a Catholic? Uh, you 've obviously done some things that are unusual for a lot of people, but what do you have any advice or something that you would tell one of your students
4: if they came to you say
1: what on
4: what do I do next i don 't know how to advise someone on what to do next, but in terms of sort of general advice to to parents or Catholic families, one thing that I do try to stress with my own uh within my own family is to associate Catholicism with joy, with merriment, and to make moments of festivity somehow tied to the, the cycles of the sacred. I really do believe that one of our advantages uh, as Catholics is this rich tradition of, of merriment and feasting and fasting, um, that to actually have a rhythm to one's daily life to me, is a very powerful way of, of deepening one's ties to the gospel.
1: That's something that, uh, at least in my generation, uh, was not preached at all.
4: Well, you know, even when we go to church on Sunday, we live by a secular calendar. And so that encourages us to sort of compartmentalize things. Uh, it, it would have been easier living in the age of Christendom when you didn't think of today as November 13th. You thought of it as St. Didacus's Day, that you, you lived according to the rhythm of the liturgical year. And I do think we should get some of that back as a way of enriching our daily lives. One
1: last question, we've got about a minute left. Uh, what would be your hope for the Church today and the Church of the future? Uh, and how, what would you say to a typical te- some Texan right now, us do, what that was, and how to
4: achieve that? Wow, that's a good question, and I, I don't really know. I Obviously, the, the simple answer is, keep the faith. Um, in many respects, I think this is a great time to be a Catholic, because we are being forced to be clear about what it is we believe in. We can't go with the flow just as part of a, a cultural inheritance anymore. We have to know what we believe and why, and uh, that's a good wake-up call.
1: That's great. Uh, I want to thank you so much for being with us today, Mike, and uh, if you can stick around for just a couple of minutes, I'd like to talk to you after we go off the air. And in the meantime, this is Gene Wilhelm uh, telling you to thank you very much for being our listeners today and be with us for the coming—I'm sorry—
0: Oh, yeah. You still have about 30 seconds. If about you 30 seconds.
1: Uh, next, next week, I will be having another very special, or next month, uh, I've got uh, Anthony Di- DiStefano. Uh, we'll be talking about his new book, The Seed That Didn't Want to Be Planted. And uh, I think that that should be very interesting as well. And in the meantime, uh, when choosing between the values of heaven and the values of earth, always round up. And know that God loves you more than you think you do, than you think He does, and more than you love yourself.
0: And go celebrate St. Didacus' Day with yeah. a San Diego cocktail.
4: Yes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs>